Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Friday, December 9th, 2016. Made an interesting executive decision today going to take out the lecture that I gave at this year's 2016 Pirate Christian Radio Conference, actually my second lecture. I think it's important to get it into your hands, especially looking at what I have on deck coming up in the days ahead here at Fighting for the Faith as we plumb deeper into the NAR. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. And unfortunately, in our days, There is no shortage of really crazy, terrible, awful, bizarre things being said that have absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with sound doctrine. And sometimes the errors are obvious, sometimes they're just ludicrous, and sometimes they're super subtle and super sneaky and a little bit more difficult to spot. Today's episode of Fighting for the Faith is going to deal with one of the more difficult ones. Now, you have probably heard it said that Jesus did all of his miracles as a man, that he totally turned off his divine nature and that he was anointed of the Holy Spirit when he was baptized. This is true. And that he did everything he did as a normal human being and never, ever tapped into his divine nature to do the things that he did. Therefore, when Jesus says, these things you will do and greater than I have done, that you know, that, that means that Jesus is the ultimate example of, a, of what it looks like to operate completely yielded under the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he's held up as a model and, that, well, as a beginning benchmark that we're supposed to exceed if we apply ourselves properly. At least that's how it's put forward. And here's the issue. This is a form of canonic Christology, which is a very serious Christological error. And so for today's episode of Fighting for the Faith, I'm pulling out my second lecture from this year's 2016 Pirate Christian Radio Conference, where I have, well, uh, the late C. Peter Wagner. He wasn't dead then, but he he's now uh, gone on. Uh, the late C. Peter Wagner, laying this teaching out, and we're going to unpack it and debunk it, and I got to tell you, this is a complicated lecture, but one that I hope 
that you will come back to. And what I'll do with today's episode of Fighting for the Faith, I will post uh, along with the the, uh, the slides that I used from Keynote uh, while giving the presentation so that you can download them and see the handout that goes along with this. So with that, let's get into today's lecture. Here is my debunking of uh, the false Christology, false canonic Christology of the NAR and many parts of the uh, seeker-driven church. Here we go. All right, working with the idea of Semper Reformanda, over the past literally year, as I've studied the New Apostolic Reformation, uh, those of you who know my history know that my wife and I spent time in the charismatic movement in the Latter Rain Movement. The Latter Rain Movement has morphed into what is called the New Apostolic Reformation. The New Apostolic Reformation literally claims that within the past 20-ish or so years, God has restored the office of apostle in the church, and that there are literally living apostles today, and that God specifically wills that every pastor in Christ's church submit themselves to the authority of their local apostle. I think I, you may have heard this. Uh, in researching the NAR, I found out that the closest apostle to me is in the Devil's Lake area, and it's a woman. I have refused on principle, and for many other reasons, to actually phone her up and offer my submission. So... <laughs> Now, along with the New Apostolic Reformation, that's kind of like tip of the iceberg. So God's restored the apostles. He's restored prophets and things like that. There is an idea regarding Christology in the New Apostolic Reformation that is not unique to the New Apostolic Reformation, but is central to the New Apostolic Reformation. And you will find this in seeker-driven churches. The doctrine that you're about to hear about is not only taught by the NAR, it's also taught by, well, Rick Warren, Mark Driscoll, and others. And if this is the type of thing that is the perfect setup for despair because it's not a biblical doctrine. But in order to see that it isn't, it takes some, a little bit of work. And here's the idea. The idea is, is that Jesus says that you are going to do greater works than he did. So how y'all doing on that? Yeah, yeah. I would like to know how many pe blind people you've healed last week. Anybody want to give me your quota? How many people have you raised from the dead? You guys are way behind, right? Sitting there going, well, what are we supposed to do? Now, the question is, and some of you might know the answer to this, if we're supposed to do greater works than Jesus, and already you're sitting there going, maybe they're not really understanding that text correctly. I would say that's correct, but we're not going to focus on that part. Um, how are we supposed to do greater works than Jesus? I mean, after all, I mean, Jesus is the Son of God, right? Well, that's right. I, there, there's no conflict. When I say Jesus is the Son of God, that's the same as saying that Jesus is God. And the Jews understood that. In John chapter 5, you know, Jesus says, Many works I have shown you, for which of these do you want to stone me? Not for these, because you yourself make yourself equal with God by calling God your Father, right? 
So how are we supposed to do greater works than Jesus? I'm glad you asked. And to answer this question, we're going to watch an informational video. From Global Spheres, see Peter Wagner, one of the original apostles of the New Apostolic Reformation. He is going to teach all of you, number one, how Jesus did what he did. And then once you know how he did what he did, you can get busy doing greater works than Jesus. Yeah, yeah and I'll, I'll try, I'm going to turn up the television like really loud, and I might add an additional amplification device. But here is C. Peter Wagner to explain. Welcome to the first session of Global Spheres Update. My name is Peter Wagner, and I'm the apostolic ambassador of Global Spheres. And um, myself and my wife, Doris, and Chuck Pierce, we plan on, on doing these video clips on a regular basis so that we can keep you up to date and uh, what, we think, uh, what we think about the way the spirit is moving in the world today and some things that we feel that it would be real good for you to know. And these um, clips will be archived, which means you can, uh, you can reference these anytime you want after this uh, presentation right now this afternoon. Now, I'm here in my office, my home office in Colorado Springs in Colorado. And uh, the central office of Global Spheres is in Denton, Texas. That's where Chuck Pierce is located. But Doris and I are uh, run what is called the Colorado Mission of Global Spheres. So welcome not only to this uh, tape and this video, but welcome to my home. Now, today I want to talk to you about how you, you can do the works of Jesus. Now, that may sound a little bit uh, uh, strange, but let me read a scripture to you. And <clears throat> you know this scripture yourself, and I'll bet it's been a puzzle in the past. Jesus himself said, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these will he do because I go to my Father. Now, let me just explain that, because most people read that and they think, well, that's far out of their scope. But I believe that it, it's not. The thing about Jesus going to his father is when he went to the father, then he sent the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the key to what I'm going to say. Now, instead of, instead of leading up to a conclusion, I'm going to give you my conclusion first and then give you uh, the way that I came to it. So, in fact, this is so important that I want you to listen carefully, and I'm actually going to read my conclusion. The Holy Spirit was the source of all Jesus' power during his earthly ministry. Jesus exercised no power of or by himself. We can do the same or greater things than Jesus did because we have access to the same power source. Now, as you know, Jesus had two natures. He had a human nature and he had a divine nature. And uh, what, what was the relationship between those two natures while Jesus was here on earth? Here's a very interesting passage. It sounds almost like a puzzle from uh, Mark uh, chapter 13 and verse 30, verses 31 and 32. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will no means pass away. Now get this. But of that day and that hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the son, but only the father. In other words, here Jesus admitted that there was something that he didn't know. And he was the son of God. He had a divine nature. So how do we explain this? 
Well, there are many people who have come up with theories, and I'm not going to go into all of them, but the one that you have heard the most, possibly and probably from a pulpit in your own church, is that Jesus had his human nature and his divine nature, and during his ministry, he switched off uh, from one to the other. And um, sometimes he operated in his human nature, and sometimes he operated in his divine nature. And um, I, don't really, I don't really think that that is a good uh, a good way of looking at this. Um, let me just let me just go back to that verse we just read, and you remember that that Jesus said about his second coming. He said, "Neither the, the the angels don't know, nor the son." Now you can say that when he said the son doesn't know because he was the son, he was he was uh, talking from his human nature. So that verse must have been from his human nature. I mean, when he was maybe changing water into wine, he switched to his divine nature. I call it the two-channel theory because he switched from his human to divine, divine to human. But in this verse, if he was using his human nature, how did he know as a human being that the angels didn't know the time of his second coming? Now, that would the only way that you could explain that with a two-channel theory is by saying, well, that Jesus changed channels in the middle of a sentence. And um, I don't think that's a good explanation. I think we have a much better explanation uh, when we think of Jesus' incarnation. And you know probably that the chief passage for Jesus' incarnation was Philippians 2. Now let me read from uh, Philippians 2, 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant, and coming in the likeness of man, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. This is what Jesus did. When Jesus came to earth, he agreed with the Father that during all of his time on earth, he would not use his human, his, excuse me, he would not use his divine nature. He would only use his human nature. And therefore, all the miracles that Jesus did and all the prophecies that he made and all the good things that, uh, that, that happened, casting out demons. He did this by the power of the Holy Spirit that God had given him. Peter says in Acts, he says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Now, if you're just talking about Jesus' divine nature, he doesn't need any anointing. But if he's acting in his, his human nature, God anointed him with the Holy Spirit. And it says, and uh, Peter said, and God was with him. So God, the Holy Spirit, was doing uh, all the mighty acts of Jesus. For example, when Jesus cast out demons, he said, I cast this demon out by the finger of God. When Jesus, um, J Jesus at one point said that um, I do nothing of myself, but only what I see the Father do. And we could list many, many of these um, these passages in the scripture that indicate that Jesus was working out of his of his um, uh, human nature. But he said even the, the, he, he, was, he made this covenant to the death of the cross, it said. So at the death of the cross, then he was no longer working only out of his human nature, even though he had it, but he had his divine attributes. And that's why after the cross and after the resurrection in Acts, the, and this is Acts chapter uh, 1 and verses 6 and 7, the disciples asked him again, when was he coming? Now notice how he answers that question differently from before. Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. He didn't say I didn't know because he did know. 
once again he had his he had his divine attributes but all the time that he was ministering he was doing his marvelous works as a human being by the power of the holy spirit now what conclusion does this lead us to you and i are human beings just like jesus we're working out of a human nature however if we have the power of the holy spirit in our lives and we're filled with the holy spirit and we move with the holy spirit then we can literally fulfill what i read before in john 5:19 that jesus said most assuredly i say to you the son can do nothing excuse me um the son does nothing of himself but what he sees the father do for whatever he does the son does in like manner so when what we see the father do once we see the father doing it like jesus holy spirit then we can do the works that jesus did and greater works of these can we do so god bless you and we'll see you the next time i do believe that uh, c peter wagner has uh, uh, well somewhat retired from his apostleship he chucked it he that's right he took his mantle and put it on pierce so all right so there you go. Now, have any of you been taught that? No? Those of you who say no, you are blessed. You know, and unfortunately, now that I've shown you that, every one of you has been taught that now. And we're going to have to address... Yeah, we're going to have to fix this is the best way to put it. Now, hang on a second here. I'm going to pull this up as a separate display so that I can read and present at the same time. So we're going to do Christology 101. And this is going to require us to do some higher level stuff and address the issue. By the way, there's a term. Um, if you'd like to know the name of this lecture that I gave it, it's debunking evangelical neo-canotic Christology. Yeah. Kenosis, Greek word for empty. There's an actual uh, false teaching out there Christologically and it's called canoticism, and this is a form of it. And this is actually quite popular and growing. Like if you know Todd White, have you ever heard of the ministry of Todd White? This guy teaches this like crazy. So I'm going to read some of this stuff that I've written here. So within evangelicalism today, there exists a Christology, a Christological doctrine, which, like I've said, is growing, has its origins in canoticism. If you want to do some work on that, canoticism is with a K. Uh, this Christology teaches that although Jesus was both God and man, he chose to not make use of his divine attributes during his earthly life. As a result of this decision, all the miracles he performed, the supernatural knowledge that he possessed, was not the result of Jesus making use of his divine attributes. Instead, all of Jesus' supernatural works, including his sufferings on the cross, that's an important thing, were accomplished by the agency of the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to examine this Christological uh, teaching. We've already sampled it in the uh, video that you heard from C. Peter Wagner. So let me summarize what C. Peter Wagner told us, that Jesus has both a human and divine nature. He affirms that. that. And here's where it gets interesting, that Jesus made a covenant with the Father that lasted from the time of his conception until his death on the cross, that during that time period, Jesus would not exercise any of his divine attributes, although he possessed them, but that he would live his life out as an ordinary human 
and perform miracles only through the agency of, and the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, does anyone note what the important problem with that statement is? Well, it's not in the Bible. That's right. It's not in the Bible. Right. So, Christian doctrine, this is an important thing. Uh, there's a Latin saying, quad non est biblicum, non est theologicum. If it's not in the Bible, it's not theology. You cannot find a single passage of Scripture where it states that Jesus made a covenant with the Father to not exercise his divine attributes. Nowhere. That doesn't exist anywhere. This comes right out of C. Peter Wagner's speculations, his thoughts. Right? This is speculative theology. The implication then is this, that Jesus' life then demonstrates what is possible for believers today to accomplish in their ministries. You kind of think of then, this is what they do. This Christology turns Jesus in to the ultimate example of the person who has the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that whole concept is a false teaching. And this then is the explanation for how we do greater works than Jesus. Now, by the way, Wagner did not develop this Christology. These views were developed and published in the 1991 book titled The Presence and the Power, the Significance of the Holy Spirit in the Life and the Ministry of Jesus by the late Gerald F. Hawthorne. Hawthorne was a Greek professor at Wheaton College. Hawthorne's Christology, which he admits is, heavily mod- is a heavily modified form of canonicism, has had a profound influence on evangelicalism's Christology. Mark Driscoll, for example, holds this same Christology, speaks glowingly of Hawthorne's ideas and their implications for how Christians are to understand the working of the Holy Spirit in their lives and God-given purposes. See Mark Driscoll's book, Doctrine, page 234. So it's important to note that Hawthorne, unlike Wagner, did not teach that Jesus made a covenant with the Father to not utilize his divine attributes during his earthly ministry. Hawthorne is putting forward his Christological views, in putting them forward, uh, was far more careful than C. Peter Wagner. However, Hawthorne readily admitted that some of his Christological views depended upon theological speculation and speculative explanations of biblical texts. One of these speculations pertains to the reason why Jesus didn't make use of his divine attributes. And here's a quote from Hawthorne's book. But how does one go about holding together these two inalienable tenets of the Christian faith, neither of which I'm prepared to surrender? without betraying a being who appears to be two distinct persons, one divine and one human, both existing side by side in one body, alternating in thinking and acting between the two, uh, being unlike any other being in the world that we are familiar with, certainly one that would not at all be like a truly human being as we know human beings to be. The particular view of the person of Jesus, or Christ, which seems to be most able to do this, and which seems most in harmony with the whole of the teaching in the New Testament, is the view that, in becoming a human, the Son of God willed to renounce the exercise of his divine powers, attributes, prerogatives, so that he might live fully within those limitations which adhere to being 
truly human. So now, notice the speculation. We don't have proof of a covenant between God the Father and Jesus. Now, well, it, the thing that only makes sense, the only thing that makes sense is that Jesus willed to take his divine nature and just shut it down. Totally turn it off. In other words, Hawthorne's explanation, unlike Wagner's, for why Jesus didn't make use of his divine attributes is that Jesus simply willed to not make use of them. As for the implications of this Christology, Hawthorne, like Wagner, taught that this view of Jesus' incarnation and miracles, if true, had profound implications for the life of every believer. Here's kind of the cash value of all of this. Hawthorne states, If all of this is so, if indeed Jesus was God, having become truly human, if indeed Jesus really experienced the same kinds of things that all other human beings experience, suffered the same kinds of pains they suffer, felt the same emotions they feel, knew the same lure of temptations they know, and so on, and if indeed Jesus stood strong against all the kaleidoscopic adversities of human existence and resisted all the many pressures to cave in, quit, give up, the cause and go his own way, if indeed Jesus finally brought his God-given mission to a triumphant completion, and all of this because he was a person filled with the Spirit, then the followers of Jesus are faced with a stupendous fact. Not only is Jesus their Savior because of who he was and because of his own complete obedience to the Father's will, but he is the supreme example for them of what is possible in a human life because of his own total dependence on the Spirit of God. Jesus is living proof of how those who are his followers may exceed the limitations of their humanness in order that they, like him, might carry to completion against all odds their God-given mission in life by the Holy Spirit. In other words, we're dealing with the Christology of the dream destiny thingy doctrine. If it's all about you receiving secret information from God, hidden from the beginnings of the earth, about the dream destiny thingy that God has for you to fulfill, well, Jesus is your ultimate example. He accomplished everything he did by being filled with the Holy Spirit. And now you, filled with the Holy Spirit, can go and fulfill your dream destiny thingy the same way Jesus did. <laughs> I mean, you, you kind of get what's at stake here. Now, here's the problem. How on earth do you begin to peel back this onion? Because you sit there and go, can I look at the Bible and say, oh, look, Jesus was operating through his divine nature. Can you? By the way, yes, actually you can. But man, it takes a careful exegete and you have to have a few categories to work with. Are you guys ready for some Latin? <laughs> Just dying to give this to you. <laughs> All right, we're going to have to do a little bit of work, and we'll do the biblical text. I'll give you the definitions first, then the biblical passages second. Does that make sense? Now, this is not normally how I teach. Normally how I teach biblical texts first, then we go and kind of work definitions. But because of the complexity of this, we have to work this backwards. Does that make sense? And I apologize for that. First category... We're going to talk about attributes, and this is what's called the genus idiomaticum. I told you. Okay, so the genus what? Yeah, genus, the idiom, no, never mind. Anyway, genus idiomaticum. 
Now, I'll explain the concept to you. There's three genuses that we're going to look at as it relates to the incarnation of Christ. Genus idiomaticum, this seeks to uphold the distinction between the two natures of Christ by declaring that each nature in Christ has its own peculiar, essential, or natural attributes, which it retains even in the union, yet without conversion or confusion. The difference of the natures is not abolished because of the union, but rather the property of each nature is preserved intact and takes part in forming the one person. We don't believe in two Jesuses. Jesus the man, Jesus the God. We believe in one Jesus. And so you'll note, here we have a human nature, here we have a divine nature in the one person who is Christ. That's why the... The graphic is actually a lot easier than the words. So in other words, even though we cannot divide the two natures into two Christs, we can make distinctions between these two natures as they work together in the one Christ. Let me give you an example. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Key passage on the genus idiomaticum. Here's what it says. Paul, servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. See, that just ruins the whole apostolic reformation right there. You know, notice Paul was an apostle sent by Christ. Yeah, right, okay. Set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. Verse 3, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So notice here, the genus idiomaticum notices and pays attention to the fact we can talk about the one person, Jesus Christ, who according to the flesh is descended from David, who according to the Spirit is declared to be the Son of God. And we're not talking about two dudes, we're talking about one dude. So that's genus idiomaticum. Within the one Christ, there are two natures, and you can discuss, you can talk about different attributes of the natures, but you don't want to divide Jesus up. You, I, I wish Hans Feeney would do a Lutheran satire on Christology. That's Nestorianism, Patrick. You know, that would be just great. You know, <laughs> it would really be helpful. I hope he's listening. Anyway. <laughs> All right, I hope your brain isn't exploding. We're going to pause right there, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break, when we come back, the balance of today's teaching, uh, debunking the false canonic Christology of the NAR and much of the seeker-driven movement. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Drink up, be hot as your hoe. 
Monty Python's Flying Circus Church. The management of Monty Python's Flying Circus Church would like to apologize to all of our listeners. Normally, we do parody here at Monty Python's Flying Circus Church. Unfortunately, due to unforeseen circumstances in the current miserable state of the church, uh, we can no longer parody the church because the church just parodies itself. For proof of this particular concept, uh, we now present to you um, the uh, Holy Ghost Okie Pokey. I'll tell you, three weeks ago, we did a Friday Night School of the Spirit, and we saw 12 people healed the Word of Knowledge, and 40 healed doing the Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey. Let's just go ahead and do that and see what the Lord does. You guys okay to do a little Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey? Can you lead it? All right, Brian's going to lead us in the Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey. Are you kidding? Put your right hand in, put your right hand out. You put your right hand in, you put your right hand out. You put your right hand in, you dig your right hand out. You put it in, and you shake it, and you shake it all about. You put your left hand in, you take your left hand out. You put your left hand in, you take your left hand out. You put your left hand in, you take your left hand Put it in, and you shake it, and you shake it, all about. You put your right foot in, you take your right foot out. You put your right foot in, you take your right foot out. You put your right foot in, you take your right foot out. Put it in, and you shake it, and you shake it all about. with the arms uh, nothing nothing real effect but then as soon as I just start we start doing the whole we'll put your left foot in your right foot in both of my knees you know one at a time I could just feel all of a sudden it's like there was no pain I said you said start checking yourself I just squat down that's awesome thank you Lord for new knees in Jesus name come on come on um, I've had back problems most of my life, and a couple of we- about a week ago, my back had gone out, and it was somewhat better, but it was still sore uh, up until today. And when we did that hokey pokey, and she came up and testified, all the pain. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do it. Ooh, shake it, shake it, shake it all about. You put your whole head in, you take your whole head out. You put your whole head in, take your whole head out. You put your whole head in, take your whole head out. I put it in, and you shake it, and you shake it all about. And you shake, shake it, it all about. And you shake it. 
Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down. Click on the ad banner and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Oi, Captain! We got ourselves a heretic! (laughs) And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. (laughs) And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. (laughs) To err is to heretic. To R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that, well, Jesus' human and divine nature were working together and that Jesus is not the perfect example of what a human could do under the Holy Spirit. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us. It's a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you're going to see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew. There are four ranks to choose from. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. Gunner's Mate, $24.95 a month. Master Gunner, $49.95 a month. And then Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. This is a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208, 
And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is the balance of today's uh, lecture on debunking the false canonic theology or Christology of the NAR as well as many parts of the seeker-driven movement. Here we go. All right, so here, here the idea, then Christological heresies then that exist either split Jesus up, which is Nestorianism, and in, when people start saying, well, Jesus did this by the fact that he was a man, or Jesus did this by virtue of the fact that he was God, you're starting to get really wobbly there. Nestorianism basically takes it so that you've got the divine nature and the human nature, and they're like two boards that are glued together, you know, like this, all right? That's not how that works. Eutychianism, which is kind of like you take the two things and then you stick them in the blender and hit frappy, right? You know, you know there, there is no divine or human nature. You don't talk in distinctions like that. Jesus becomes, well, something different altogether. So the idea is you want to maintain the, t- the distinct natures within the one Christ without separating or confusing. Does that sound like the Athanasian Creed to you? Yes. Okay. We've dealt with this before as a church. Let me give you another text. 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 10. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it's not a wisdom of this age, or the rulers of this age, who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Who did they crucify? Right. Okay, now this is where it gets weird. Christianity from time to time kind of riffs off of these things in order to kind of flesh out heretics. Let me give you an example. Is it proper to say, there's Jesus on the cross, he cries out, it is finished, Breathes his last. Can you correctly and accurately say God died? Yes. I know it seems weird. Okay? But the answer is yes. Now, to flesh out heretics in the past regarding the you know, proper Christology, the Christian church used a wonderful term, theotokos, and they referred to Jesus, well, as to Mary, as the mother of God. Now, this is going to be strange. Think about it for a second. Does God have a mommy? No. And yes. Jesus has a mommy. Jesus is the God-man. You can call Mary the mother of God, but man, you had better start doing some splaining. Okay, you know what I'm saying? And so in the past, there were certain heretics who couldn't say Mary's the mother of God because their Christology was heretical. So we as Christians, we affirm, well, yes, Jesus is the God-man and God has a mommy in that way, right? You see what I'm saying here? So here in 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 10, verse 8, we read, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, can you crucify a spirit? God is spirit, right? The Lord of glory is a term used specifically of Christ's divine nature. If Christ is not incarnate, you cannot crucify the Lord of glory. But by virtue of the fact that the divine glory is incarnate in the one Christ, now the Lord of glory can be crucified. Does that make sense? 
So we can talk about it in a sense, but we don't say it was only Jesus' uh, human nature that was crucified. That would be an error. Or you can't say it was only Jesus' divine nature that was crucified. Again, an error. No, the one person, Christ, was crucified, and he has both a divine and human nature. Does that make sense? All right, you guys are all excellent students, and I'm sure you'll pass the final on this. Next category, the genus Maestaticum, majesty for short. This genus is explained well by Martin Chemnitz. Here's what Chemnitz wrote. The divine nature of Christ in itself has received nothing from the hypostatic union. The divine nature doesn't gain anything here. Okay? But his human nature has received and possesses innumerable supernatural gifts and qualities which are contrary to its nature and which are above every name and also above and beyond the exceed and exceeding in its own essential properties, which still, however, remain unimpaired. You can read this, by the way, in uh, Chemnitz's book, The Two Natures in Christ, which if you're going to be a serious theologian, you really need to read this book. I apologize, it is thick. It is very ponderous at times. But in short, Chemnitz says that the attributes of Christ's divine nature affect and enliven the attributes of his human nature. For example, because Jesus was God, Jesus, as both God and man, could walk on water. Or... Because Jesus was God, Jesus, as both God and man, could heal the sick. Or because Jesus was God, Jesus, as both God and man, could rise from the dead. So the idea here is is that there's a communication of divine attributes that now the human nature are able to, you know, like partake in, right? In the one Christ. That's the idea. So this is Jesus can do stuff we can't do. And yet it's in the one Christ. Let me give you some texts to kind of help flesh this out. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5-9. through 9. This is the message that we have heard from Him and we proclaim to you. That God is light. In Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light... As he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And watch this. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Were the Pharisees wrong when they complained about Jesus when he would forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins? No, they were not wrong. Only God can forgive sins. And yet this text says the blood of Jesus forgives sins. So in other words, Jesus' human blood, by virtue of the communication of the attributes with the divine nature, is now capable of doing what no other human blood can do. Does that make sense? Let me give you another text, good cross-reference. Acts chapter 20, verses 25 through 28. Now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. This is the Apostle Paul talking to the elders of Ephesus, of the church of Ephesus. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God, 
So pay attention to yourselves and to all the flock for which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. God is spirit. When does God have blood? Right, in Christ. So you notice this text explicitly talks about the fact that we were purchased with the blood of God. So in the one Christ, divine and human natures now are working together, and we're seeing that Jesus' human nature is like added bonus points, abilities, if you would, by virtue of the fact that it is combined in, 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 with the divine nature. And there's not two Jesuses, there's only one. I'll give you another text. This is where it gets real fun. John 6, 49-53. We heard a little bit of this today. Jesus says, Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So the Jews disputed among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. So here we have a claim by Jesus that his flesh, eaten, will give us life forever. I don't know anybody's flesh is capable of doing that. Quite frankly, I'm not interested in anyone saying, hey, a mine can. Okay, I'll pass. Okay. How is this possible? Again, it's a communication of the attributes. They're working together then within the one person. Only Christ can talk this way. We can't. So there's kind of the foundation work then. And this, by the way, becomes the very reason by which Christ can say, this is my body. This is my body blood because Jesus's human nature well has something going on because of the communication of the attributes of the divine nature within the one Christ this next one is where the cash out though is and this is where you begin to see clearly that what C. Peter Wagner said and what Hawthorne said what Driscoll believes and what those in the secret driven movement and the NIR teaching is actual heresy it's in the third genus. Let me open this up. And this one's called the genus Apostellus Maticum. That's a mouthful. Apostellusma uh, in Latin means a work. Okay, so the genus Apostellus Maticum. This genus asserts that even though distinctions can be made in Christ's two natures, the whole person of Christ and not one of his natures individually saves us. Martin Chemnitz says it this way, The union of Christ's two natures took place in order that the work of redemption, propitiation, salvation might be accomplished in, with, and through both of his natures. Thus, when we speak of our salvation, we say, Christ saved me. We do not say, the human nature of Christ saved me when he died on the cross. Neither do we say the divine nature of Christ saved me when he rose from the dead. Nope. All of Christ, his birth, his ministry, his death, 
and his resurrection affects our salvation. So the idea then is, is that the way this then cashes out is that there was never a time when Jesus turned off his divine nature. Ever. And the church has always confessed this from Scripture. Now let me give you some texts on this one to kind of help out. <clears throat> we'll go back to the text that we just looked at. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. John 6, 49 through 53. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. They died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that if anyone, so that the one may eat of it and not die, I am the living bread and came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Both Jesus' human nature and divine nature are explicitly invoked in the one Christ in that statement. And you can tease it out. In other words, Jesus here in talking about this miracle is speaking in a way where both natures are working together. They're not separated. They're not distinct. The one Christ is miraculously doing this, right? First John chapter 1, 5 through 9. Listen to this. I'll go back to verse 8, which is where the cash out is, but... This is the message you've heard and proclaimed to you. God is light. We've read that. We say we have fellowship with him as we walk in the darkness. We lie. We do not practice the truth. We walk in the light as he in the light. We have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. See it? Both working together. So the cleansing of sin is through the person of Christ. And you can see both natures pushing you know, basically in the one Christ, and, the, and it's all teased together into the works. No separation, no distinction. And these texts are explicitly describing things that Christ could only do by virtue of the fact that he's acting and operating in his divine nature as well. Does that make sense? All right, let me give you another text. Romans 5, 1 through 10. Therefore... Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. We've heard that a few times today, right? That heresy of rejoicing and sufferings, right? I want my best life now. Yeah, I know, but if that's what you want, you go to hell. So... So we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die, But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, notice the person of Christ has blood, we're justified by that, right? How much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? 
salvation coming from the divine nature through the one person. They're all they're mixed up in the one guy. You can distinguish them, but you can't you can't pull them apart or confuse them. And the work is our salvation and justification. And so as you pay close attention to these texts, you can see both natures in the one Christ doing the work. And this rules out their, well, their Christology. Highly nuanced. Takes a microscope and a very careful read. Now you're sitting there going, yeah, but he said that Jesus did this and the agreement was during his lifetime, from the time he was conceived until the time he dies. Let me give you a cross-reference that will kind of help out a little bit here. We're going to do a little comparative work. Okay? Because if you can demonstrate from Scripture just even one miracle of Jesus that Jesus is doing by his divine nature, the whole thing blows up, right? Yep. Matthew 8. After the Sermon on the Mount, here's what happens. Verse 1. When they came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. Behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, right? So we can see Jesus' human nature in action. And he said, I will. That is my will. Be clean. And immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. Hmm. Okay. Who's doing the willing? Jesus. Who performed the miracle? Jesus did. All right. Let's keep on this theme. Let's take a look at another passage. Okay. Luke 14, 1 through 6. Words matter. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. Those religious people, you know, those people who like sound doctrine, they always do that. I'm joking. Hopefully you got yesterday's lecture. That was a joke. Okay. Behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. That's a very dangerous condition. Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Now watch the pronouns. Then he took him. Who's doing the taking? Jesus. So there's your reference. He took him and healed him. Who healed him? Uh Uh-huh. And sent him away. Now, if you were to read this the way these guys do it, you would have to say, Jesus took him, the Holy Spirit healed him, and then Jesus sent him away. The construction of the sentence rules that out. Jesus took, Jesus healed, Jesus sent. So that wonderful compound sentence, and I know it's nuanced, rules it out. Because Jesus is the one who did the healing. It doesn't say the Holy Spirit. Now, we'll do a little comparative work here. Peter, the Apostle Peter, he performed miracles. How did Peter do miracles? How did he do them? Was he able to do them? Nope. He did them by the power of God. Peter, like you and I, only has a human nature. 
Peter, like all believers, is filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter is an example of somebody who performed a miracle by the working of the Holy Spirit. And the comparisons are quite interesting. Acts 3, 1 through 16. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Ninth hour is three in the afternoon, right? Man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Peter, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. He fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver, I have no gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise and walk. Notice the difference. Right? Someone, a leper comes up to Jesus. If you will, you can heal me. I will, Jesus says, be healed. Right? Peter says, in the name of Jesus, stand and walk. See the difference? Qualitative, ginormous difference. Right? Jesus acts like he's doing what he's doing by virtue of the fact that he has a divine nature. And he does. So in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. All right, so he took him by the right hand, raised him up. Immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Watch this. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy One, the Righteous One, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life. That would not go well at most churches today, by the way. Now, notice the distinction. Every time Jesus performs a miracle, who does the text say did the healing? Jesus. So it's this guy, right? There is no text that says Jesus then said the Holy Spirit did this through me. Right? The texts always say Jesus healed him. According to Peter, who healed this guy? Jesus did. Right? Huh. And then you have that wonderful statement, you killed the author of life. Author of life is God. He's referring to the one Christ. And so here we have another great example of really the communication of the attributes in the one Christ. Now, I know this is complicated. It's complicated in one sense because there's really big theological words, right? But at the same time, 
If you carefully look at what the texts are saying, the texts will tell you who did the miracles. When Jesus healed, he's the one who did it. And he has both a human and divine nature. When Jesus walked on the water, that wasn't the Holy Spirit saying, hey, let's go see what you can really do now that I'm inside of you. Not at all. Jesus, the God-man, can walk on water. Jesus, the God-man, can know what you're thinking. Jesus, the God-man, healed in many different ways. He healed by touch. He healed by word. He healed by hunking a loogie in the sand. And you think about that for a second. The spittle incident. It's a terribly awful way to be healed, if you think about it. Really? You know, this guy can't speak, and he comes to Jesus, and Jesus says, hang on a second here. <laughs> and he mixes it up in the sand and says, hold still, and takes some of it, puts it on his tongue. And he's going, no! <laughs> Are we to really believe that the Holy Spirit was in his spittle? But that spittle was made by his human nature. Actually, it was made by the one Christ who had both a human and divine nature. So that wasn't just ordinary spittle now, was it? Right. No mention of the Holy Spirit there. Okay. And the church, by the way, understood this stuff. They really, really did. And they understood this really, really early on. And you know why? Because the church early on was buffeted. Buffeted by heretical teachings and heresies and heretics from its beginning. You already see it in the writings of the apostles over and again warning us about the false teachers who have crept in, right? And what were the early heresies about? The nature of God, the nature of Christ. The Arian heresy, which denied that Jesus was divine from eternity. And you have other heresies, modalism, Patrick, you know, and things like that, right? And so as a result of the heresies that the devil kept bringing into the church to get people's faith off of Christ and onto some idol created by the devil, the church had to hammer these things out and did so with precision. I'd like to give you just two examples of this from antiquity. One of them you already know. It's the Athanasian Creed. Let me read the back end of the Athanasian Creed. It's wonderful. Here's what it says. It is also necessary for eternal salvation that one faithfully believe that our Lord Jesus Christ became man. For this is the right faith, that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is at once God and man. He is God, begotten before the ages of the substance of the Father, and He is man, born in the world of the substance of His mother, perfect God and perfect man, with reasonable soul and human flesh, equal to the Father with respect to His Godhead, and inferior to the Father with respect to His manhood. Anybody having any problems with this so far? Right? No, this is just straight up Bible, right? This is just a synopsis of the Bible. Although he is God and man, he is not two Christs, but he is one Christ. One, that is to say, not by the changing into of the Godhead changing into flesh, but by taking on the humanity into God. One, indeed, not by confusion of substance, but by unity in one person. 
For just as the reasonable soul and the flesh are one man, so God and man are one Christ, who suffered for our salvation, descended into hell, and rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and is seated on the right hand of the Father, whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. And now here's the rub. I'm going to make like this really outrageous claim. But here's the idea. The Athanasian Creed specifically says that there is that in the one Christ, right, there is God and man, and that he suffered for our salvation. I'm going to just ask you this. Is it possible without this for any human being to suffer the wrath of God for the sins of the world? No. In other words, the absolute proof that this te- of this teaching is that is wrong is that no human being is capable of suffering what Jesus suffered on the cross, the wrath of God for the sins of the world, unless He is both God and man. In other words, the sufferings of Christ on the cross for the sins of the world is proof positive that's false because that occurs before His death. And no human being could do that unless He were both God and man. In other words, what C. Peter Wagner, which you heard him say, what Hawthorne teaches, is absolutely has to be rejected by virtue of what Scripture says as accurately summarized in the Athanasian Creed. When we confess that Christ, both God and man, suffered for the sins of the world, that is a miracle that is only possible by the communication of the attributes between the two natures. Nobody could do that. Literally roasted in the flames of God's wrath. So the crucifixion and Christ's suffering rules it out. And it's all there for us, written years and years and years and years. Well, more than a millennia ago. Those old people, they, it's like they knew what they were doing. And I, also, I would point you to the Council of Chalcedon, from 451 A.D. Council of Chalcedon. I'm going to read a couple of sections out because, oh man, the theology in this is so tight that it's, it's almost beautiful is the best way I can describe it. Listen to this from the Council of Chalcedon. It was the Holy Spirit that made the Virgin Mary pregnant. But the reality of the body derived from body, as wisdom built a house for herself, The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That is, in that flesh which He derived from humankind and which He animated with the spirit of a rational life. So the proper character of both natures was maintained and came together in a single person. It's written in 451 AD. Lowliness was taken up by majesty. Weakness was taken by strength. Mortality was taken by eternity to pay off the debt of our state. Invulnerable nature was united to a nature that could suffer, so that in a way that corresponded to the remedies we needed, one and the same mediator between God and humanity, the man, Christ Jesus, could both on the one hand die and on the other be incapable of death. 
Thus was true God born in the undiminished and perfect nature of a true man, complete in what is is his and complete in what is ours. By ours, we mean what the Creator established in us from the beginning and what he took upon himself to restore. There was in the Savior no trace of the things which the deceiver brought upon us and to which deceived humanity gave admittance. His subjection to human weakness in common with us did not mean that he shared our sins. He took on the form of a servant without the defilement of sin, thereby enhancing the human and not diminishing the divine. For that self-emptying whereby the invisible rendered himself visible and the creator and the Lord of all things chose to join the ranks of mortals spelled no failure of power. It was an act of merciful favor. So the one who retained the form of God when he made humanity was made man in the form of a servant. Each nature kept its proper character without loss And just as the form of God does not take away the form of a servant, so the form of a servant does not detract from the form of God. Council of Councilon continues. There's nothing unreal about this oneness, since both the lowliness of the man and the grandeur of the divinity are in mutual relation. As God is not changed by showing mercy, neither is humanity devoured by the dignity received. The activity of each form is what is proper to it in communion with the other. That is, the word performs what belongs to the word. The flesh accomplishes what belongs to the flesh. One of these performs brilliant miracles. The other sustains acts of violence. As the word does not lose its glory, which is equal to that of the Father, so neither does the flesh leave the nature of its kind behind. We must say this again and again. One and the same is truly Son of God, and truly Son of Man. God, by the fact that in the beginning He was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was God. Man, by the fact that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. God, by the fact that all things were made through Him and nothing was made without Him. Man, by the fact that He was made of a woman, made under the law. The birth of the flesh reveals human nature. The birth from a virgin is proof of divine power. A lowly cradle manifests the infancy of the child. Angels' voices announce the greatness of the Most High. Herod evilly strives to kill one who is like a human being at the earliest stage. The Magi rejoice to adore on bended knee one who is the Lord of all. And when he came to be baptized by his precursor John, the Father's voice spoke, from heaven to ensure that he did not go unnoticed because the divinity was concealed by the veil of the flesh. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Accordingly, the same one whom the devil craftily tempts as a man, the angels dutifully wait on as God. Hunger, thirst, weariness, sleep are patently human, but to satisfy 5,000 people with five loaves to dispense living water to the Samaritan woman, a drink of which will stop her from being thirsty ever again, to walk on the surface of the sea with feet that do not sink, to rebuke the storm and level the mounting waves, there can be no doubt these are divine. Now, compare what you just heard me read from the Council of Chalcedon with what you heard C. Peter Wagner say. 
Okay? See, Peter Wagner is pointing you to who? Yourself. Council of Councilodon is pointing you to Christ. As soon as you think that it's your job to go and, well, through the agency of the Holy Spirit, just like Jesus did, go and do greater works that he did, you've now become one of the false Christs that Jesus warned about in Matthew 24. You are full of yourself. You are not full of Jesus. The church has always recognized what Scripture teaches, and that is in Christ there is both God and man, and yet there are not two Christs, there are one. And what he did, he did by virtue of both of his natures in the one man. And he came to earth to accomplish our salvation. It's all about him and what he has done for you, for me. And that other teaching takes your eyes straight off of that and may as well hold a mirror up to yourself. You become a false Christ. You become a false messiah. This is the theology that creates that. Something to consider. And I'll leave it there. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so. My email address is Talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. Until next week, may God richly bless you, and the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ is vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>